Hi, thanks for joining us again as we take our Bibles and we go to Numbers chapter 22 in our study on the wilderness wanderings. So we work our way through this book of Numbers. It's been a, a joy personally to work through it, and hopefully for you it's been a challenge uh, as you learn about the book of Numbers, but also as we apply it to our lives. As we get to Numbers chapter 23, for the most part today, we're going to start last two verses of number 22 there. We get to Numbers 23. We, we can look back to a day in our history in America, on May 24th, 1844, when uh, a simple phrase from Numbers chapter 23, in fact, verse 23, uh, through a series of dots and dashes, through Morse code, it really changes communication the way people knew it forever. They use that phrase, what God hath wrought, from Numbers 23, and Samuel Morris sent that first uh, telegraphed message in America uh, across the way. And it's an interesting phrase. We'll talk about it here in a moment. But not everybody was super excited about this new type of communication. In fact, the change that occurs when any change occurs to a degree, there's always that uncertainty. There's that potential of what is this new device going to do? How is it going to change us? In fact, the New York Times posted a few years later, they called the telegraph superficial. They said that it's too sudden, it's unsifted, that it's too fast to receive the truth. In other words, the truth had to come slowly. Another writer, Matthew Arnold, called it a rope with two Philistines attached at each end. And uh, what, not, a, not a flattering description that, that he gives there. They didn't, they didn't like the idea of change. They didn't like the way that it potentially may impact their society. And we know that it did impact communication. It did change. Because with uncertainty, any little bit of transition can cause uncertainty. Any bit of change can cause that. And uncertainty can easily uh, cause fear, can cause anxiety. Don't we see that in our lives? Don't we see how that can occur when we start to see change and transition, whether in leadership, whether in job situations, whether in life in, in general? When something begins to change, we can feel uncertain. We can feel a little concerned and we can become anxious. We can become fearful. We've, we've seen that over the last year and a half, haven't we? How just we feel uncertain. We feel fearful because of all the things that are different. All the things that have been changed. All the things that have been brought down upon us or, or ripped out from underneath us. And, and we become very tense and nervous. And, and uncertainty can, can cause that fear and anxiety. And Balak, the king of Moab, is beginning to feel that uncertainty. That's why he's pushed to, to find this, this pagan prophet. There's this huge group of people outside of his borders. And are they going to invade? Are they not going to invade? What's going to happen here? Will the, will the superstar prophet, will he be able to come in and curse the people? Will his curse even work? And there's this anxiety, there's this fear, this concern, this uncertainty in his life that he's trying to discern and find some certainty, find some concrete things that can happen so that he can go forward, conquer the people, and just have this go back to the normal, the way it used to be. Get this Israel group out. And he desires for that, that little bit of, of stability. And so in his uncertainty, he seeks out Balak, now, or Balaam. But what he doesn't realize is that the one he is seeking out, he's just an imposter. He's, not, he's a counterfeit spiritual person. He doesn't have the authority. He doesn't have the right to simply be able to curse uh, Israel, especially without the authority of God. 
And so he's thinking, I'm, I'm getting this perfect weapon of mass destruction to go against Israel. And what he doesn't realize is that he's just getting a powerless person who has no authority other than what God has given to him. And so he's, he's in this weird situation. He hasn't put that together yet. Eventually, he, he may a little bit, but that's for later on in the story. But I would argue that people today do the same thing. <clears throat> We're constantly looking as a society for some sort of spiritual guidance, some sort of discerning of what's the best thing to do. What is, what is the will of, whether it's God or the gods, for me? To, to go forward. How do I figure it out? How do I know what I'm supposed to do today? And so people have just flocked to the concepts of psychics, horoscopes, all those different dynamics. And you might look and say, well, that's not, that's not Christians. That's other unbelievers. Pew did a, a research uh, poll back in 2018. And it was amazing to me, 33, one-third percent, one-third of evangelical Christians, not just Christianity as a whole, believe in psychics and astrology. That's scary. It's not that we shouldn't be dabbling in occultic things like that. They are not they are not beneficial for us. They are the things that were often used in, in pagan practices to discern, to divine the, the wills of the gods. And now we're just sort of accepting that. We we can't be doing that. But you might look at all oh, I, I don't I don't seek after those things. But you might not go after these modern day diviners, but are there other things? Are there other spiritual counterfeits that you tend to follow or look for to give solution to your uncertainty? Do we go after the ideas of maybe some more money or a self-help book or a better job? That's going to fix everything. That's going to make it all better. And we don't even take the time to, to go and discern God's word. We, we run to other things. We have clearly seen through the passages that it is God alone who has the power to bless. God alone who has the power to curse. God alone who, who discerns and gives his will and shows us. And he's done that beautifully for us. We have this, this great ability to have an incomplete Bible and to know God's will and to be able to take the principles and commands and apply them. Let's run to God, not to the spiritual counterfeits, but that's what Balak did. Balak ran to this one who he thought was going to be able to help him to discern and to divine and curse Israel, but he's got a spiritual counterfeit on his hands. Because we know that at the end of chapter 22, Balak, or Balaam has basically been become a mere messenger boy for God. He says that what the Lord puts in my mouth, that is what I'm going to speak in verse 38. He's, he's basically, Balaam has no authority, no power. But Balak is excited that he's here. In fact, he's so excited that he throws him a feast. He throws a feast in verse uh, 39, 40, uh, and he offers the oxen and the sheep sent, and sent it to Balaam and the princes that were with him. So there is this feast. Is this feast a, a dignitary celebration feast? It, it very well could be, and it may be a little bit of both of these options. The commentators are split on both. Is it that, or is it... Uh, a feast of divination where they slay all these animals. Yes, they're going to eat some of them, but they're going to use the entrails, the kidneys, the livers, the blood for Balaam to be able to discern and to, to practice his omens and his enchantments in order to be able to begin this divination process. 
there's a good possibility that that's the case too. The Bible writer doesn't get into that because the Bible writers are not going to, if it's a divination feast, they're not going to take the time to spell out what he did and how to go about having a divination. Because the Bible, the, the Bible is very clear that that's not to be part of our practice. We're not supposed to dabble. So why would the Bible writer put it in and say, hey, by the way, Jews, this is how you do this. They're not going to put all that in there because we know that. Now, as what happens here is Balak is now going to, if you look in verse 39 and 40, it's there, or 40, 41, excuse me. And Balak offered oxen and sheep and sent them to Balaam and the princes were with him. And then it came to pass on the next day, the morrow, that Balak took Balaam and brought him into the high places of Baal, that, or Baal, uh, that thence he might see the uttermost part of the people. Now, depending on which version you have, you're going to see the word Bamoth Baal in a, in a number of the newer translations. In the King James, it just says the high places of Baal, which is a good translation here where it says this is where they went. The high places of Baal. Balak has basically moved the battle to his own court, his home field. He's going to have this, this thought. He's going to go to the high places of Baal, the place where he worships his God or God's. And so he, he feels like, okay, if I'm in my home court, now we're closer to my deities. Now we're going to be able to get somewhere. We're going to get some traction to go against Israel and their gods. Uh, if you follow football, Seattle, the Seattle Seahawks are really big. It didn't work in uh, the COVID era, but they, they have what they call the 12th man. The 12th man is, you know, there's 11 on the field. The 12th man is considered all of their fans. They are to take an active part in the game. They're to make it so loud and so difficult for the other team to hear. And, and players talk about that it's really difficult to play there because of the, the 12th man. It's their home field advantage. And there's, there's a reality to, in sports to a home field advantage. Balak is thinking, okay, now I've got, I've got Balaam in my courts. We've got the gods in our favor. We are in our home field, and we're going to be able to do this. We're going to be able to take. So they're going to, to start this whole process. And while they're up in these high places, Balaam could see the people. Why is that important? Because for many of the, the beliefs and the, the cursings and the diviners, they felt they had to be able to see, have a line of sight, with what or who they were cursing. And we'll see that in each of the, the different times where Balaam is able to see the people that, that he is going to attempt to, to curse. And so they're, they're on the home field, home court advantage here, and they're going to move into chapter 23. And as we move there, Balaam is now going to give the orders. It's he, because we're moving into the realm of the spiritual. And so as he's going to give Balak these orders, there's, there's going to be a change here. Balaam is going to say, do this, do this, do this. And Balak does, takes a subservient role. He's going to follow and he's going to do those things. But notice as we go through, notice the uncertainty of these men. And notice the certainties of God and Israel as we go through. And we'll highlight that as we, as we go through. As we pick up in chapter 23, the uncertainty of, of the men. Balaam says to Balak, build me here seven altars and prepare me seven oxen and ram. And Balak did as Balaam had spoken. And Balak and Balaam offered on every altar a bull and a ram. And Balaam said to Balak, stand by the burnt offering and I will go. Peradventure, the Lord will come to meet me. And whatsoever he shows me, I will tell thee. 
and he went to a high place. So we have Balaam and Balak offering. They're attempting to manipulate the gods through their sacrifices. If we offer the right ones, if we offer more, if we offer better, then they're going to have to listen to us. They're going to have to do our will. And so we do this so that they have to do what we desire. That was the thought. That was the process that was going on. And so they're going to do it. And Balak, this is going to be long. It's going to be intense. It's going to be expensive. It doesn't happen in a couple hours. And yet Balak is willing to do this. He's so intent on finding some certainty and finding the ability to, to curse these uh, Israelites. And so he says, stand by your burnt offering. Now, when you hear this concept of burnt offering, don't instantly jump to just, oh, they're, they're doing Israel's sacrifices because they're going to try and meet with Israel's God. Burnt offerings were a common practice among all of the different uh, Canaanite religions during that time period. So they're just, they're going to burn, they're going to burn the animals upon an altar. And so they, all we know is this, Balak is seeking to identify with the gods and he's seeking their aid. That's what they're doing here in an attempt to gain favor, manipulate, and get what they want, the cursing upon Israel. So as Balaam hopes to meet and talk with Jehovah, we have to realize there's not a guarantee. Look in verse 3 again. It says, peradventure the Lord will come to meet me. He doesn't even know if God's going to come and meet him. The, the way that it's phrased here, there's no demand upon God to, to come and to meet with Balaam. Balaam has no relationship. Balaam has no authority to, to, to bring God. When Moses goes to meet with God, Moses speaks face to face. He has this relationship. You know that it's, it's, it's going to happen. When he intercedes on behalf of the people, Moses would be there and God would, God would hear. There's no demand here. There's no authority that they have. And the, the Hebrew actually allows for that. The Hebrew where it talks about peradventure or perhaps it leaves it up to God to respond. God doesn't have to respond. God could just leave him there and say, nope, not going to do it. Not going to come meet. And yet we know that the Lord is going to come and to meet with him. Balaam, when he meets with God here, he's hoping to, to get a good word from God. He says, look what we've done. We've done all these sacrifices. He's hoping that through his handiwork, God's going to be, oh, impressed. And okay, Balaam, you, you guys sacrificed a lot. You did a lot for me. So I'll, I'll, I'll do what you want me to do. And so he's hoping, he shows him that in verse number four, and he assumes the work of Balak. This is really interesting because yes, they both, um, Balak did as Balaam and they both offered on every altar the thing, but he doesn't say Balaam. He says, I have offered upon every altar a bullock and a ram. Not Balak and I. He says, I did that. And what he's doing here is he's, he's taking the role of his medium, the, the mediator between the gods and Balak. He's, he's uh, assuming that role there. But the Lord is going to put a word, verse 5. He puts a word. It's important. I would highlight that word. And actually, you can go back through and highlight it in a number of places. Back in verse 38 of chapter 22, God puts. You have it here in verse number 5. You have it again later on in verse number 12. It's going to come up. Verse 16, it's going to come up again. You're going to see it. You're going to see it come up a number of different times in this passage that the Lord puts a word in Balaam's mouth. The word that is used here, it's unique, often used of the prophets. Deuteronomy uses it of the prophets in general, that the Lord puts his word in their mouth. 
It's specifically often used in Ezekiel and Jeremiah when Ezekiel gets a word from the Lord or Jeremiah gets a word from the Lord. It says that the Lord puts the word in their mouth and it's the same word here. So we know that in this case, Balaam is now a spokesperson for Jehovah. He is that messenger boy and he is going to deliver and must deliver the words that have been put into his mouth. To change those words would be insubordination. He's not able and not going to do that. He is simply the messenger boy. And he knows that by now. Balak hasn't figured it out. But Balaam's starting to understand. There's nothing I can say other than what Jehovah's telling me I, I am to say. So what does he say? When it comes to verse 7 through 10, we get the first, uh, what is often referred to as an oracle or a, uh, an announcement, uh, a statement from God to the people through the mouth of Balaam. We have it in verse 7 and following. And it says, and he took his parable. Now, they're going to get a word, but they're not going to get a word that they're expecting. This word parable here, uh, don't, think, don't think like we think Jesus, earthly story, heavenly meaning, you know, just this little. No, it's, it's more than that. It's, when it's used here, it has this idea of something that's poetic, something that's parallel, something that is cryptic a little bit. You're trying to figure out what is it saying. It has a little bit of deeper meaning. It's not just always very simple. It's not just, it talks about them being a lion. Is he literally a lion? No, it's, it's using some figurative language. That's, that's going to be here. As Balaam puts, speaks the message from the Lord, I want you to picture Balak's response. And I want you to try and picture how Israel would respond. Because remember, Israel's hearing this. They didn't know what happened. They're hearing how, how this all unfolds. So what did God say to Balaam? And what is Balaam going to say to Balak? And they're listening. And what, what are they going to hear as they go through? Balak is basically saying in verse number, verse number 7 and 8, he says... And the king, king of Moab, Balak, the king of Moab, brought me from Aram out of the mountains of the east, saying, Come, curse Jacob, and come defy Israel. And he says, How shall I curse whom God hath not cursed? And how shall I defy whom the Lord hath not defied? Balak looks and says, Okay, he brought me out of my land to come to curse and defy Jacob. But I can't do that. Because God has said, I have not cursed them. I am not defying them. They cannot be defied. They cannot be cursed unless God allows that. And so he highlights that in verse number eight. And once again, we see God's sovereignty in this. Balaam has no authority, no power. He is powerless. He is impotent when it comes to these matters because God is in control. God is the one who is dictating whether or not he's going to be able to bless or curse. Not Balaam. And so Balak's hearing this, and it's like, what's, what's happening? So Balak uh, proceeds, uh, to Balaam, it should say, Balaam proceeds to speak about this group, group of people. He says, the people shall dwell alone in verse number, uh, verse number nine. They're going to, they're, they're going to be, I see from the hills, I behold them, lo, the people shall dwell alone and shall not be reckoned among the nations. Who can count the dust of Jacob? And the number of the fourth part of Israel, let me die the death of the righteous and let me, uh, let my last end be like this, like theirs. So when he talks about the people shall dwell alone, they shall be able to dwell or live in this place that they're going, where they're at, they're going to be able to do it safely and securely is the wording of the, the dwell alone. They're going to be able to do that in Jehovah's blessing. 
There's a permanency. There's a, there's a security that they have. Why? Because there is Jehovah. He has said that. He has put them there. They have this unique security. They have this distinguished heritage. Notice it starts back. They talk about them being Jacob. They talk about, he's going to talk later on about them coming out of Egypt and all the, the way through the wilderness. And you're going to see these people who have this, this distinguished heritage. And as Israel's hearing it, they're like, yeah, God promises to Jacob. God promised these things to Abraham. We have Jacob and Abraham being highlighted in this passage here. We'll see Abraham in a second. And, and they're hearing it and they're like, we have this distinguished heritage. We have this unique relationship with God. And as, as we, we go through, they're, they're not reckoned among the nations. They have a uniqueness in their relationship with God. They have a distinct, they're distinct, a peculiar treasure to God. They're the apple of his eye. And, and Balaam is starting to, to realize this as they go through. He says, who can count the dust of Jacob? You can't even number a quarter of them. Ironically, we're in the book of Numbers where they're going to number them two different times. But they, they look and they say, they're so vast. There's so many that they're, they're seeing. And it reminds me of Genesis 13, where after Abram and Lot split, Abraham is told, your seed will be as the dust of the earth. As this group is coming toward Moab, the dust that's just being kicked up, they can't even see through. The, the people are so great. There's so many of them in this time. And as Israel's hearing this, they're like, wow, think about this. And think about the, the, the protection in the, of God through this time. They've come out of Egypt, a greater nation than when they went in. They went in, you know, 70-some. They come out millions. They go through 40 years of wandering in the wilderness. And now these people are looking at them and saying, wow, you can't even number them. You can't even number a fourth of them. There's so many. It's, it's God's fulfillment to, to Abraham saying, hey, I, I promise this to you. It's happening. And as Israel's hearing that, they're hearing about their heritage, about Jacob, about the fulfillments of promises to, to Abraham and how God has done this. And they have this distinct identity. They are God's people. And they're hearing this, and Balaam and Balak are hearing it, and they're starting to realize, wait, these, these, this is a unique group. This is a secure, this is a safe group that is here. They have persevered. They are powerful. They are plenteous. And yet God is with them. God is taking care of them. And look at the uncertainty that comes up in, in Balaam. Balaam is going to, at the end of chapter, uh, the end of verse 10, he says, let me die the death of the righteous and let my last end be like his. Is this Balaam's salvation prayer? Is this him saying, okay, I want to, this is what God has placed into his mouth. And yet Balaam here is starting to reflect He's looking and saying, I want, I want what they have. I'm longing for their life and their death to live well and to die well like these people are. I want, is, it, is it because he's admiring them? That's what the idea of is, I wish. He admires them. I'm a, and yet I'm attempting to curse them. I wish I had what they had. I wish I had that, that joy and that relationship that they, they have. Israel does not have a monopoly on God. And in fact, God desires for other people to know, to love, to respect him. So he could have responded by faith in that. Now we know as we get to the end of Balaam's life and we, we see the scripture, the attestation of scripture, he didn't come to believing in Jehovah in a, in a faith-saving way. We know, we know that he didn't do that. We talked about that two, two lessons ago. It was short-lived. 
So what was he longing for? Was he longing to be blessed like these people? Possibly. Was he longing for the safety and the security for his offspring? Possibly. There's a lot of different reasons that are given for why did, but when it comes to scripture, we don't know. We're not sure, but we know that he admired, he longed for what they had. He found it very unique in the relationship they have with their God, the security, the safety, the, the providential watch care of their God. He found that very admirable and he longed, he longed for it. Now he's longing for it, but what is Balak doing? Balak's pulling his hair out. He's like, are, are you kidding me? What are you doing to me? I have brought you here to, to, to curse these people and you're going to admire them? You're going to want to be like them? You're going to bless them? No, you're, you're not to be doing that. How can you? And you, you can just, you can physically see him like putting his hands, smacking his hands in his face, pulling his hair out and saying, what are, what are you doing to me? There was this uncertainty in their roles. Balak, in his mind, had hired Balaam. He had hired this, this sorcerer who was going to be able to give these magical incantations, these mystical things, and dishearten and dismantle Israel. And yet Balaam is not a sorcerer like that. He is a diviner. He has the ability through his magic, through his abilities, to be able to see the signs of nature, the birds, the, the entrails. He do, uses those in his, his dark arts in order to discern the will of the gods, the direction that people should go. And then he tells, he's not, he's not this super sorcerer who comes in and just, you know, flames the people. That's not, that's not what he's doing. And that's what Balak is thinking, but that's not what he's got. And so there's this, all this uncertainty of what's going on. They don't know. You can see it here. Balak looking, what are you doing? I don't, this is what I'm supposed to say. I can only do that. I've told you. I can only say what the Lord puts in my mouth. All I can do. But I didn't hire you. For, and, they're, and they're just this chaotic moment. We're like, what is going on here? And yet God knows what's going on. And, and Balaam, to a degree, does too. He said, I, I, I can only do what I can say. I can only say what God puts in my mouth. Nothing else. I don't have that ability right now. And so God has promised, when we look at it, God has promised Israel an inheritance. He's promised them prosperity. In ages past, it is something that he promised to the patriarchs and he's beginning to fulfill it. That they're going to be able to go into this land. That they're going to be blessed. That they're going to have all these dynamics. And that they will not be defrauded of it. Balaam and Balak have not figured that out yet. They haven't put it all together. And yet that is what is happening. And that's what Israel's hearing. They're like, God's got our back. God's taking care of us. And so Balak thinks, well, maybe, maybe we just need to change it up a little bit. Maybe we need a new location. So what does he do in verse, down in verse number thir- uh, 13, or 14, excuse me. And no, it is 13. And come, I pray thee, with me to another place. From there you may see them. Thou shalt see the utmost, the, the fringe part of them, and shalt not see them all, but curse me from thence. If you can't give me all of Israel, how, how about you just give me this little part that we can see from Mount Pisgah? We'll, we'll go there. We'll go to a different, different location. 
And so he, he changes the location to be able to hope to curse portions of it. So he goes to this area, Mount Pisgah, overlooking the fields of Zophim. We'll come back to Mount Pisgah eventually because it's there on Mount Pisgah that Moses is going to be able to see into the promised land and uh, transfer power to, to Joshua. So it's, a, it's, a, it's an interesting place. But right now, Balaam's overlooking and he's going to try this all again. But remember, we've learned, we learned last time, God's not limited to a geographical region, is he? No. God is sovereign anywhere and everywhere. So even though they change locations, they think maybe it'll be better for their gods, they're missing the point that God is sovereign everywhere. For all nations, all people, all locations. And so the uncertainty of man still plays in here. We're going to see them once again build the altars in an attempt to manipulate the gods. Balak is going to stay with his... It's a, it's a repeat of what has just happened. And they're going to... Balaam's going to go to meet Jehovah. And as he goes to meet Jehovah, he's going to eventually come back here in verses 16 and following. And the Lord met with Balaam. And once again, what did he do? He put a word in his mouth and said, Go again to Balak and say this. And when he came to him, behold... Balak is going to stand up and look and say to him, okay, what, what, are, what are you going to do? What, what was said? The Lord meets with Balaam. The only certain things right now in Balaam and Balak's life really is this. There's one certainty they have. Whatever God tells Balaam, he's going to say it. That's the only certainty they know. They don't know what he's going to say. They don't know what's going to happen, but it's going to happen. So when he returns, Balak, interestingly enough, doesn't use his generic word for the God, for God. But now in this verse, verse 17, he actually says, what does Jehovah say? He's heard the name Jehovah so much. He's starting to understand that this is the God of Israel and he's the one who's communicating with Balaam. He's, he's starting to tell. So he says, what does Jehovah say? What's he, what has he got to say about this matter? What's going to happen? Have we been able to convince him to curse his people? Have we been able to manipulate in order to, if we offered enough sacrifices, have we done enough to be able to get God to, to do what we want him to do? So, so what did he say? And he says, hearken. He says, listen up, pay attention. One of the commentators said that the word here for hearken in verse 18 has a very similar word to the German word aktung, where it's the idea of not just listen, but hey, there's a warning coming. Pay attention. This is serious. You need to, you need to listen to this, Balak. So he's, he's, there's an intensity here that says, hey, pay attention. What is God going to say to you. And he's going to, he's going to highlight Balak is uncertain. And yet God is going to say, let me give you some certainties. Let me tell you why you're not going to be able to manipulate me. Let me tell you why Israel is secure, why they are safe, why they are protected. And you're not going to come against them. Let me tell you what's going to happen if you try and just don't do it. And so there's this certainty from God in this passage. Now God is about to reveal much about himself through Balaam. Remember, this is the Lord putting the words into Balaam. This is not a man's perspective on God. This is God's certainty about God revealed through the messenger. So this is not just a, a just this sinful pagan prophet's perspective on Balaam. This is, or on God, this is God's perspective on God. God is saying, this is who I am. This is what I do. And because of this, Israel's safe. Israel's secure. Because there are some certainties. So let's, let's look at the certainties of God. What does the Bible say? The God, God's certainty is based upon his character. Who he is. And we see that as we get to verse 19 and following. 
God is not a man that he should lie, neither the Son of Man that he should repent. Hath he said and shall not do it? Or hath he spoken and shall he not make it good? Behold, I have received commandment to bless, and he hath blessed, and I cannot reverse it. God looks and says a lot about himself. He's transcendent. He is above mankind. He is not just like us. He's God. He is above. He's not a man. He's the creator. He's not the creature. God and humans are different, and I am so thankful we are. Because I don't want, I don't want a God fashioned after me, after my whims, after my wishes, like so many do. That's what idols are. That's what false gods are. We fashion, we fashion gods after our own likeness, after what we want. No, God is above that. His ways are not our ways. He is above all. He knows all. He created all. He controls all. He is above. And so because he is above us, because he knows what he's doing, because he is in control, he has the authority and the right, and he comes and he says, this is who I am. I'm in control. I'm not a man that I should lie. His certainty is based on that character. His purposes are utterly true. They're utterly reliable. That he should lie? Why would God lie? God, he doesn't lie. And it's not the idea here when he says that I, that I should lie. It's not that God's contemplating, should I go back on my promises? Should I lie about them? No, it is the idea that he is truth. He is utter truth. That there's not even the, the remote possibility. When he says something is going to happen, it is going to happen. When he makes a statement, it is true. His nature does not disappoint or fail. So when God makes these promises to Israel, he doesn't disappoint. He doesn't fail them. He is going to follow through. His words are utter truth, and it is not in his nature to fall short of his promises. He's not like us. He's not a man who fails at keeping his word, who hopes that he can keep his word. No, when God says his word, his word is valid, it is true, it is reliable, it is firm. And he says, God's not fickle. God doesn't change his mind back and forth. He doesn't go from one thing to another that he should repent or that he should change his mind. God is not unstable or steady. He is a sure and steady anchor. He doesn't go back and forth. He doesn't say, well, if you offer a really good sacrifice, then I'll go and see if Israel offers a better one. Balaam, if you do enough, and Balak, if you do enough, then maybe I'll consider. No, he's not gonna, he doesn't go to our whims and our wishes. His ways are steady. His ways are stable. They are secure. God's, God is the ultimate promise keeper. He says, what I have said, I'm going to do in verse 19. He says, if, I, if I've said it, why would I not do it? And I've spoken it. Why will I not make it good? He's like, I keep my promises. What I say, what he says he will do. What he promises he will fulfill. He is unlike humans who change their mind, lie, manipulate, and try and get things their way. He's God. And his character demonstrates the certainty that Israel can have. The certainty that these things are going to happen. He's not like humans. I'm not human. He says, I am God. I'm the one in control. 
I am the one who's going to keep his word. I promised it. It will come to pass. Balaam tells Balak because God is not like us in any way. What's he telling him? He's different from us. Balak. Why, why am I not going to change my mind? Because I don't do that. Balak. Why am I not going to go back on my promises? Why am I not going to lie and change it up? Because it's not in my nature. Because what I say I will do. What I promise I will fulfill. I will keep. Balaam has been instructed to bless and he cannot reverse it. He says in verse 20, there's no way I can do this. There's no U-turn here. God will not allow his words and his promises to be contradicted. God will not be manipulated by man's whims, by man's wishes. He said, I I just can't do it. And Balaam is going to instruct Balak in the foolishness of pursuing a fight with Israel. In verses 21 to 24, he's going to highlight that. It would be like, me, why? I know the Incredible Hulk doesn't exist, but if you know one of us decided we're going to walk up and we're going to pick a fight with the Hulk, why would you do that? That would be insane. That would be ludicrous. Well, Balaam is looking at Balak and saying, don't do it. There is foolishness to go up against God, to go up against these people. It is not wise. He says, he had not beheld iniquity in Jacob, neither hath he seen perverseness in Israel. The Lord his God is with him. And the shout of a king is among them. God hath brought them out of Egypt. And he hath given them the strength of a unicorn. Surely there is no omen or enchantment against Jacob. Neither is there any divination against Israel. According to this time it shall be said of Jacob and of Israel, What God has wrought, or what God has done. He highlights, he looks and says, there's no point in us doing this. They're warrior king. God is their warrior king. And he is providing protection. He is providing comfort. He is providing care for them. He has not beheld or seen their perverseness or iniquity. It's not that Israel is perfect and they've not sinned. It's that God is looking at them, not in his wrathful way of dealing with sin, but he's looking at them with the perspective of care and concern and protection. And he's looking and saying, you're not coming against mine. These are, this, is, this is my family. You're not touching them. And so their warrior king is in their midst. He's there. He's ready. And he will protect to the uttermost. God is, God is there. And he really cares for him, Balak. You, you would be foolish to be picking a fight. Because their warrior king, the one who's brought them out of Egypt, the world power, yeah, that, that group. He delivered them from them. We all know what happened there. He's put them through the, pro- the wilderness. They've been wandering, and yet he still cares and protects them. And now they're at your front door, and you want to you wanna pick a fight with them? They're not picking a fight with you. Let them go. And yet Balak is still bent on wanting, wanting to do this. So is their warrior king. God is in their midst. The shout of the king is with them. He's there. He's present. God is with his people means that there is no form of opposition that is going to be able to overcome them. Nothing is going to be able to separate them from the love of their God. Nothing. No power, no principality, nothing. No king, no diviner, nothing. God is with them. God is protecting them. God has their back because he is sovereign. He is in control. He is present in their midst. Now, Balaam is going to use some poetic speech, and there's this, the, the strength of a unicorn in the, in the King James. And, and you look and you're like, what is that? It's the idea of God's, God is the constant guardian of Israel, and he is strong and able to protect them. 
He is the one who has delivered them from and decimated Egypt. He is the strength of the unicorn. This phrase here, the the unicorn, or the word unicorn, is used in a couple different passages uh, throughout. And I I would encourage you, most modern translations have the idea of a wild ox, uh, or uh, the idea is the auroch. Uh, And if you're wondering about that or you want more, go back to the Job series on uh, the ones about the zoo. And Pastor Burgraff covers this and talks about the Arak even more uh, intently. It, it went out of it, it went into extinction in like 1620s, uh, but it was just a wild cattle, huge, strong, known for its strength and known, known for the fact that it couldn't be tamed. And that's the the wording that's used here. It's not a mystical little unicorn that's you know glittery and rainbows and all that. It's the idea of the strength, the power. The point is not the animal here, but the immense strength, the unstoppable nature of God. That when he is behind something, you don't want to be against that because he is strong, he is powerful, and he's unstoppable. You can't thwart him, I can't thwart him. Nothing can thwart his plan, his ways, his agendas. And so you can't stop God, he's saying. God is this constant guardian of Israel. There is nothing natural, nothing supernatural. He says there is no omen. There is no divination that can be levied against them that can thwart God. He says there's no, nothing, nothing that's there. Israel needs nothing because they have Jehovah Balak. Don't go against them. This is foolish. They have this powerful, strong guardian and their warrior king Jehovah, who's going to take care of them. We're not going to win. Don't do it. God's constancy makes this so certain that the people are going to say what God has wrought, what God has done. They're going to look in history, Balak, and they're going to look through the pages of history and go, look what God has done. He's brought these people out of Egypt. He's brought them through a wilderness. He's going to do more with them. And we know on the other end, we can look through all the history of Israel and we can say, wow, what God has wrought. Look what God has done because God fulfills his promises. His nature says he cannot lie. His nature is that he does not just whimsically change his mind. He's not fickle. He is above. He is transcendent. He is sovereign. He is providentially caring for his people. He keeps his promises. God's works works marvelous miracles for Israel because God is for Israel. God is for them. And if God be for us, who can be against us? It is beautiful to see God's sovereign watch care, his providential protection that occurs here. This is not about what Israel can do or has done. It is about God. It is about what God does with his people and through his people and for his people. He is a wonderful and amazing and glorious God. He cares. He cares for his people. God is this constant guardian. And he goes on and he says, they're going to be victorious. Balak, they're going to win. What is it? What is it? Look, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a gory verse. Verse 24, he says, he says to him, Behold, the people shall rise up as a great lion and lift up himself as a young lion. He shall not lie down until he eat of the prey and drink the blood of the slain. 
you get this gory picture of a lion and a a pride of lions just tearing through an antelope or a wildebeest and just ripping them to decimation and then just lapping up the blood and eating everything out. It is, it is an intense scene. And what is Balak saying, or Balaam saying to Balak? He's looking and saying, they're going to be victorious. They're going to rise up like this powerful lion to conquer. God is going to accomplish the reversal of fortunes for anyone who would try to destroy his people. Why would you want this great lion rising up against you? Why, why would you wake the beast? Let it lie. Walk away. He's powerful. He's strong. You don't want a part of him. Don't poke the beast. Don't do it. And, and, and in all is fleshing out here. Balak, do you really think this is worth pursuing? Should we keep going? I would say don't mess with them. And yet we know Balak is still intent. They're going to do this again, as we'll see next time. It's going to happen. But Balak right now, he's had enough. Verse 25, he basically tells him, hey, zip your lips. Stop talking. Don't, don't, don't do anything. Balak said to Balaam, neither curse them nor bless them at all. Don't do anything. Quiet. Stop talking. Because when you talk, good things don't come out for me. Good things come out for them, and I don't want any more of it. Zip your lip. Be quiet. Don't bless them. Don't curse them. Balaam reminds Balak that this is what Jehovah is saying. He looks at him and says, Balaam, I told you, verse 26, saying all that the Lord Jehovah speaks, that I must do. And this is what God has said, and this is what God is doing. And Balaam, Balak, this is what I had to say. I told you that that's what you were going to get. Do we really want to trifle with God, with Jehovah? Do we really want to do this? Is this wise? Let's just walk away. And, and we, we, get, we leave here and we start looking and saying, what, what is God telling these two? What are all these dots and dashes as is the, is the, the Morse code comes across? What, what, are they, what are they saying to them? Someone's got to interpret it. Like, and Balaam is trying to tell Balak, and what is God saying here? What set God's people apart? What's he saying? What, God, what sets God's people apart is not their perseverance, their population, or their power. It's their God. He's like, we can try and do anything to these people, but it's their God that makes them unique. It's their God who's protecting. It's their God who's promising. It's their God who's fulfilling. This incomparable, this incomparable God has promised to bless these unparalleled people. They are unique. They have an amazing heritage, an amazing security. They have this unique destiny. And the incomparable God of the universe, Jehovah, has guaranteed that he's going to bless these unique people. The sovereign watch care and the providential protection of God brings certainty to our uncertainty. As Israel listens and they hear this and they realize that God has their back, God is caring, God is protecting their uncertainty of going into the land. What's going to happen? How is this going to all play out? What do we do when we have to go to battle? What do we do when these other nations come against us? Are we going to be okay? When we are focused on God and when God takes care of us, he is taking care of us. And so it brings them certainty even in their moments of transition as they hear what the story of Balaam and Balak is all about. 
And so we see this sovereign watch care, this protection. So for Israel, your security, it's unshakable. Your inheritance of this land, it's guaranteed by God. Your destiny is secure. God promised it to your forefathers. Your heritage is that. And he says he will fulfill what he promises to do. You're going to be going into the land because I promised it to you. I will protect you because I've told you I will. I will provide for you all of this in the land because I have said that. God keeps his promises and your enemies, they're powerless because I am your God. And I am this roaring lion who is going to ravage and lick up the blood of anybody who opposes you because I am your sovereign God. I am your protector. I am your warrior king. I am your champion. I am truth. And what I say, it will be accomplished. The promises of God are guaranteed through the character of God. This is because of who I am. These things are going to happen because that's what I said would happen. And Israel can, can gain this certainty in their life in the moments of uncertainty because God is in their midst. Because God is with them. Because God is guaranteed. Because God has secured. Because God is unshakable. They have all of these blessings that they have. But you know, I would argue that that's not just for Israel. God's character that does not change, that is the same yesterday and today and forever, is the basis for the promises that we can claim. To think about our security, to think about our inheritance, our destiny, our enemies who come against us. What do do we have? Just plow through a whole bunch of verses with me real quick as we wrap up and think about our security, our inheritance, our guarantees, our destiny, all promises from our sovereign and wonderful providential God who is caring for us, who is truth, who is element, who is what he says, it will be accomplished. It is true. Look at these verses as we just, we just go through them very quickly and think about God's promises are guaranteed through the character of our God. John chapter 10 Verse 28, 29, he says, I give unto you eternal life. You shall never perish. You shall never be plucked out of my hand. And my father, which gave them me, is greater than all. And no man's able to pluck them out of my father's hand. Romans 8, if God is for us, who can be against us? He did not spare his son, but delivered him up from all, for us all. Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It's God that justifies. Second Timothy chapter 2, but I am not ashamed. For I know whom I believed, and I am convinced or persuaded that he is able to keep or to guard until the day what has been entrusted to me. My salvation is secure. 1 Corinthians 1, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of the Lord? God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, he who has prepared us For this very thing is God who has given us the spirit as a guarantee, as a down payment. It is going to happen. We are going to have that that home in heaven. 1 Peter chapter 1 verses 3 to 5. According to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. To what? An inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading kept in heaven for you. It is guaranteed. It is not going to perish. It doesn't go away. Who by God's power 
not my own, God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. 2 Corinthians chapter 1. And it is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us and who has also put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. John chapter 6. You know, thinking about the power of our enemies. He says, I've said these things unto you that in me you may have peace. In the world, you're going to have tribulations. You're going to have difficulties. But take heart. I have overcome the world. Philippians chapter 1. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Chapter 4 in Philippians. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Hebrews chapter 7. He holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. Hebrews chapter 13, he said, I will never leave you. I'll never forsake you. So we can confidently say, did you catch that? We can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear what man can do to me. The confidence that I can have in the promises of God is because of the character of God. And our sovereign God providentially watches over us and cares for us and desires to bless us. And he says these promises and they are true because he is God. He is truth. He loves us and nothing can separate us from that love. Rest in the promises of God today. Rest in the character of God because that's what makes those promises guaranteed. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for your care. Thank you for your love. Thank you for your promises. Lord, help us to live righteously according to your word. And Lord, thank you that you care enough for a sinner like me and for those listening as well. Thank you, Lord, for who you are. Thank you for your sovereign providential care over us. Even in these crazy, uncertain times, you bring certainty to our lives. Thank you for that. In your name we pray. Amen. Have a blessed day. Bye.